and welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. Lots to talk about today in the world of women's football, especially our Tilly, so we will get through all of it. It's me, Marissa Lordanic, Anna Harrington, Angela Christian-Wilkes and Sam Lewis. So obviously we've had the Matildas game against Brazil. We've had an Asian Cup draw. There's just been lots of little bits and pieces going on since we last spoke. So let's chat about it all. We'll kick things off as we usually do without you love to see it. So Harrod, do you want to kick us off with a you love to see it? True to form. I'm going to be predictable. I'm going to go with Sam Kerr's goal against Brazil. Like just... Just a delightful goal, to be honest. Um, the way the Matildas shifted the ball from one end to the other, starting with Sam's fave, Claire Wheeler, um, Ellie Carpenter making two like extraordinary runs. Like I can't imagine anything more punishing than having to keep up with Ellie Carpenter. Um, and of course, just the the finish from Sam Kerr, the way she just controlled it so well. Like it was like the defenders weren't even there, and then just rifled it into the back of the net. Like it was just. Like vintage Sam Kerr, reminder to everyone just how good she is. I imagine she was probably feeling a bit of the weight of not scoring just yet in these couple of friendlies at home. And she just reminded everyone, just underlined just how good she is. She's now only one goal behind Tim Cahill as Australia's all-time leading goal scorer. And, yeah, when she gets past that and becomes the outright leading goal scorer, I think we can all agree we're going to want a public holiday just about named after her. So Sam Kerr getting back to what she does best and leaving us all just gasping in amazement. How good. Oh, you love to see it. It's both of those things. Anna, I can't believe you didn't mention your favourite thing as part of that goal. Oh, no, of course. And she nutmegged someone on the way through. Uh, Angela was at the pub with me and just heard me say, retired so young in front of so many people in Sydney. What a way to go. Like, you're just never coming back from that. Um, So, yeah, the finish, the nutmeg, the control, just everything about it, amazing. And clearly I loved it so much that I even forgot my favourite part. Um, So, yeah, Sam Kerr doing Sam Kerr things. You love to see it. That was real. Here are a few of Anna's favourite things. (laughs) Sam, you love to see it? Yeah, Harrow sort of mentioned my you love to see it in in hers just then. Uh, That move was started off by Claire Wheeler. And Claire Wheeler had, I think, her best game in a Matilda's jersey in that second game against Brazil. I thought that she was fantastic when she came onto the field. She was exactly what our midfield needed in that game as well. They needed someone steady, someone to shore them up in that sort of defensive midfield role after Kara seemed to lose a little bit of legs towards the end there. And, like, she did what Claire Wheeler is really good at doing, which is the scrappy stuff. She nipped the ball in. She got toes in she you know continued to run alongside players and pressure them when they were on the ball and she was able to provide so many different passing options and other kinds of angles and spaces when they were trying to play out from the back as well so I was just so buzzing for for Claire because she just seems to have become just coming along in leaps and bounds under Tony Gustafson and and in this Matilda's environment and as a result perhaps also of playing her club football overseas now instead of hanging around the W League sorry the A-League women's um which is yeah so anyway Claire Wheeler living up to the expectations that so many of us have had for her at the Matildas level. You love to see it. Friend of the pod, Claire Wheeler. We love to see it. Angela, uh, you love to see it? Yeah, um, my love to see it, I don't know, it's pretty obvious, but Polk's goal to open the account in that game, it was well, she scored in the first game and it was like fantastic. We love to see Polk score. But then she did it again and I think she's making a really good um, argument for herself to be at 2023, like in this team, I don't know. We all sort of thought maybe she would be retiring maybe one day soon. We don't want to think about it, but oh my God, she's been on fire. And yeah, the goal, I'm just going to spend 10 minutes talking about the goal, but it was like a left-footed volley that she got on the end of a like sort of miscleared header from um, Brazil. And it was just finished so perfectly. It was so lovely. And I don't think I've ever seen her score a goal quite like that with such a like beautiful arc to it. And it just, you know, soared into the top left corner. I was like, oh, magical. Both of the goals this game were magical. I just, yes, you love to see it. And also just quickly, the fact that two minutes later, she was on the goal line at the other end, heading the ball out and like stopping us conceding get you a Claire that can do both you know it's just get you you know I just love it you love to see it Polk's never leave 
Would you say she has the range, darling? Polk's most certainly <laughs> does have the range. If anyone has the range, it's Polk's. It sure is. Also, Simon Hill on the commentary was talking about a Polk statue. I know our mates up in Brisbane have been talking about a Polk statue. Give us a Polk statue. I want absolutely euphoric face Polk statue somewhere in Brisbane like now. The best bit with Polk's as well is you mentioned having the range. Like in terms of a personality, she's the most like measured, balanced, calm person, doesn't give too much away, doesn't get fired up, like it's always just been very calm and composed. And it's the same most of the time on the field, I think, when she's defending. But when she scores a goal, it's just like the other side of Polks comes out and just takes over. It's so good. As you say, Marissa, like, do you put the statue up as calm, composed Polks? I think you go all out and you have the double fist pump Polks because um, that's what the people deserve. I'm just thinking they need to make the statue before, like, we attempt to make a statue and just it's just the most horrific nightmare fuel you can imagine. Like the Ronaldo. (laughs) Yes. The Ronaldo bus. Does anyone remember that absolute horrific, just like looks like someone tried to make him in Play-Doh and dropped him on the ground. And then that was the thing that they. (laughs) You imagine us, we'd be like, Sam, you're the tall one. So we're going to need you to stand still as we figure this out. Oh dear. But yes, Pulse deserves a beautiful statue. But yes, you love to see it. Pulse, we love you. We really do. I'm also just imagining like Google search 100 kilograms of Play-Doh and popsicle sticks to like make this statue. Anyway, that's enough about that. We'll talk about it when it comes because it will happen. I demand it. Um, but the game we have been talking about was the 2-2 draw between the Tillies and Brazil to round out this two-game friendly series. It was so stressful. <laughs> For a friendly, I spent the whole game kind of with my shoulders up around my ears. I forgot to breathe a couple of times because though this is what these games do to you. There's just so much stress. There's so much happening on the pitch and it was such an enjoyable game to watch. And I know you said that the neutrals must have been absolutely ecstatic with how that game turned out and stuff. So what are our kind of general thoughts and vibes after, after this game? Yeah, it was, it was stressful. It was weird because it almost felt like Brazil were more on top in the first half, but we ended up taking a 2-0 lead earlier in the game and then we seemed to level out, but Brazil were the ones finding the back of the net. It was all very stressful, especially early. Like It just felt like Brazil were trying to ping shots from everywhere. Um, yeah, it was clearly they brought in Dabinia, who is a class act. Marta started as well. It was a stronger lineup. Um, I think you mentioned Sam in terms of Kyra, Cooney Cross. She looked tired. Um, Mary Fowler had that really magical moment with her footwork and a couple of really nice balls as well. But I think that's just two young players who maybe, uh, you know, we had long playing trips, training, played a full 90 and then another full 90 like three days later. And just they both just looked a little bit tired and not quite the same spark as we as we saw. Um, we I guess it was a lot more hectic from the get go. Um, but it was just so exciting. As you said, Marissa, it was if you were a neutral and not total stress heads like us, you'd have just been absolutely frothing watching that. Like it was a genuine exhibition, like in terms of two teams that are like have aggressive man- mentalities. They go for it. They've got flair. They've got dare. They've got um, physicality. There were so many like sort of crunching jewels. I, I don't know how Letitia's still alive after these two games. <laughs> like, I just feel like the poor thing has got crunched over and over again. Friendly fire, opposition. She copped, I think it was a Kaya Simon knee in the back this time. Like, and it was, it was very physical. I think there were a couple of cards handed out and there were a couple of, there was definitely at least one penalty shout where <laughs> the ref was really letting stuff go as well in terms of she wasn't, which you, which does help with the game. Like she wasn't a bit, she wasn't all tiggy touch, but I'm blowing the whistle for everything. So she let the game flow. And as you mentioned, these games are always fiery. They're always entertaining. I mean, from a, from a Matilda's perspective, I think they would have been disappointed not to come away with, with the win, but you looked at Brazil on the final whistle and they were clearly really disappointed that they didn't manage to get a win out of it, which to me says draw fair result. Both teams kind of looked a little bit relieved, but also a bit disappointed. And to me, it was a, it was a fair result. Like it was, um, as I said, two teams that were aggressive, that had some flaws defensively, but largely I'd say three of the four goals were very, 
were very good. Brazil will be disappointed with the poor clearing header to Polkinghorne for the first, but the Polk's finish was brilliant. There was nothing Brazil could do about the Sam Kerr goal. Um, the, the first Brazil goal was really, really poor defensive work from the Matildas. But Dabinia's goal, I think, is just a classic example of one of the most desperate and quality strikers in the world, having an extra touch of pace and getting to the ball first and nearly knocking herself out in the process. Like It was a game that really had everything. Sam, you were there and you were at the first game. How did you see this one? Yeah, I mean, desperate is like a good word to describe it, I think. It was was frantic. It was... It was enthusiastic from both sides. And like, you're right. It, it sort of feels like in these kinds of games, I think we talked about this in our preview episode, that the Matildas in Brazil seem to just have this chaotic energy about them, which sometimes exposes their vulnerabilities that each other can exploit. And I think we saw that very much in this second friendly. We saw the Matildas' defence be opened up a couple of times, our frailties in that respect be exploited by Brazil. But also we were able to exploit Brazil's frailties in the same way. We were able to pass through them, particularly for that Sam Kerr goal, which I think was probably the best Matildas goal that this team has scored in a number of years. I think it was better than any of the goals we scored at Tokyo in particular. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you're right, Harry. I think it was a pretty fair result. It was it, it 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 waxed and waned in the way that Brazil matches tend to. It reminded me a bit of the miracle of Montpellier. You know, it was it had that sort of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three kind of feel to it. And Tony Gustafson said as much in the post match presser as well. He was like, yeah, like it was it was a fair result. There were ways um, and areas and uh, statistics where Brazil were very dominant. Um, particularly when it came to shots. I think by the half hour mark, they had recorded three times as many shots uh, or by half time, three times as many shots as what the Matildas had. Um, and when it came to, I think it was final third um, entries or penalty box entries, I think the Matildas were pretty slack um, in that in that statistical area compared to Brazil and, and setting up like serious chances. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a great, game like the the atmosphere again even though there were fewer people than the Saturday game the atmosphere was incredible I think a big part of that um goes to the Brazil fans who were again it's completely ecstatic to even just be around their national team but particularly around their national team with someone like Marta starting um they were chanting they were waving flags they were just this absolute joy to experience and they really lifted the rest of the crowd around them um I think yeah Marta and and Dominia were they were really important and I sort of wrote about this in my in my um, analysis piece as well they were really important for this side not just in terms of what they are able to offer technically but in terms of giving the team confidence in themselves because this is a very like this Brazil side is in a similar kind of spot to what the Matildas are in terms of rebuilding. They're bringing through this new generation of players who haven't really been given a look in um, after Brazil's golden generation had started to retire. But now uh, we're starting to sort of see the fruits of that longer labor and having veterans like Marta and, and um, Dabinia there, being able to give them faith and give them direction, I think was really powerful in that second game compared to the first one. And it's also, I guess, something that a player like Claire Polkinghorne gives to this Matilda side as well. She's very similar in, in that respect and, and, and giving this team a sense of um, confidence and comfort in themselves and what they can do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it was just an amazing game to to watch and to be there to experience and to see Marta in the flesh, maybe for the last time in her international playing career, even though she said after the match that she's probably going to continue because she absolutely loved being out there. Um, hopefully she's back for 2023, but if she's not, then it was a, a total joy to be there to see it. I hope she's back. Like it's, it's only less than two yeah. years away. Like just get her to do a Carly Lloyd, Abby Wombach style role and, just chuck her in like Marta can just create something out of nothing um it's interesting so you mentioned the word rebuild because we were talking about it pre-record and I'm trying to stay away from the word rebuild and I don't know if this is because I was saying to Marissa um I obviously work a lot in AFL and when we talk about rebuild you talk about it's from the top up like old players out off you go bring in loads of youth and away we go like starting from really like starting from the bottom I feel like it's almost um like 
not a, like a regeneration, a refresh, a rejuvenation. Like we're still seeing a lot of the key players, like obviously Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Emily Van Egmond, Tamiki Yallop, Steph Catley and co have all been there for a good decade or so. But we are seeing new players brought in to sort of fortify things. Uh, Angela described it as like renovating the bathroom or like <laughs> making a couple of key changes that, Im- that improve and fortify things but don't necessarily go full re- rebuild. Like the core structure is still there. I think that's the difference. We're not having to, I guess, throw everything out and start again. Um, I think that's what's quite exciting, especially given from the get-go of Tony joining, it's can you win the World Cup? Wouldn't take the job if I didn't think I could. We know that is a, the loftiest of ambitions, right? But we, you couldn't do a full rebuild and do that. But what has been so exciting is the way that these players have been thrown in and given roles and responsibilities. You, you summed it up really well with Claire Wheeler there. Sam, I think she came on and the first time she touched the ball, she put it out for a throw-in. But then it almost like she got the little nervous thing out of her system straight away and then was very good, very, as you say, very industrious, much more, I think, naturally suited to that defensive midfield role um, than probably Kara Cooney-Cross, who we, we we said had a very understated um, performance in that role in the first game against Brazil. But Claire Wheeler just seems a bit more naturally suited to that role, and she did really well. Um, the thing I also loved was um, the substitutions right near the end of the game. So it was about the 80th minute. So the players that got – so you look at the game, as you say, it's a, it's a friendly match, but it's the most intense of friendly matches, right? We're playing Brazil – Tensions are high. Emotions are high. It's two all. We've dropped a two-goal lead. One thing you could do would be to try and just shore things up, bring on experienced players, you know, just stack stack up. Steph Catley comes off. Claire Polkinghorne comes off. Caitlin Ford, I think, comes off. And you've got Briley Henry, Courtney Nevin, and Angie Beard brought on. It's two all, 15 minutes left in a chaotic game, and Tony's turned to three very inexperienced players and said, Let's see what you can do. So the whole left side of the defence has been changed and Briley Henry has been obviously given the role of, you know, do the defensive work as a forward and if you can pinch a goal, good for you. Held firm. Like these players got thrown into a pressure environment, albeit for only 15 minutes. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known. Courtney Nevin in particular made a, a couple of really good challenges and put in a couple of amazing balls as well. She has that real wand of a left foot, very similar to Steph Catley. And I've, I've spoken in the last part about I really like the way she goes about it, and I think she's going to be a long-term option. But I, I really enjoyed that. It was It's hard to replicate tournament football, but the closest you're going to get is those sorts of moments where there is, you know, a crowd sort of tinkering, like sort of teetering on the, on the brink, like what's going to happen? The Brazil crowd are up and about. Brazil were up and about. And they held firm. And, yeah, they didn't manage to get the winning goal in the end, obviously, but... I really enjoyed that. And that's that's the sort of thing I want to see more and more of when we talk about regenerating this team and building depth and, like, bringing these players through. That was something that really excited me because we've seen Mary Fowler and, to a lesser extent, Kyra Cooney-Cross thrive when given these opportunities. And the more and more we see these players tested, the, the better off I think we're going to be. Angela, I know you had a thought on Angie Beard. Yeah, it's. I guess it's sort of like a... Uh, how good folded in but they've done um the Matildas have put up little videos for interviewing post-game each of the debut players or the younger players and Angie Beard in her she was like I did a slide tackle on Marta and I was like oh yes you did friend of the pod Angie Beard always need to pop that in but yeah and um I think as well the environment as you mentioned Sam that the energy in that stadium would have been really transformative, I guess, in terms of those moments for the those younger players as well um, and really helping in terms of building their confidence in, yeah, like it's not a high-pressure situation, but it helps. It makes it feel like a high-pressure situation. Um, I think it's interesting as well. So to all, they get thrown on. And in terms of like shoring up our defensive capabilities, that will be really important. So they weren't necessarily put on to, I feel, bring the game to a win, but they did the thing in making sure that they played a part in keeping it level and not conceding. And I think that's really fantastic. Um, that's just sort of where I'm going, sort of the, the inverse super sub. It's like, just don't, you're going on to not fuck anything up. That's your job <laughs> rather than to like, you know, 
see a win home, for example. So I thought, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And I think going back to what you were saying, Anna, about, oh, sorry, Marissa, I know you have to put an explicit warning. Oh, <laughs> anyway, um, and I think going back to the, the point about, you know, whether it's a rebuild or, or a reno, it might just be informed by our sort of position as Matilda's fans or followers where we haven't really seen this many new players in such a short amount of time. So, um, you know, in previous years, I'd say previous six or seven years, we've, we haven't really seen anything like that. So in that way, it feels like, you know, there's so many new building blocks that it almost feels like a completely different picture. But yeah, as you said, Anna, at the heart of it, there's still this core um, really fantastic foundational um, players that I guess are, yeah, that scaffolding that these new players are working around. So, yeah. Sam, I love your thoughts on this. To me, it felt like it, apart from on the pitch, the Brazil fans, it almost gave us a lesson here in Australia of what our fans are going to have to bring come 2023. Because if what's the point in having a home World Cup if we're going to get outsung by little packs of opposition fans. And that's not to take anything away from clearly what was a great atmosphere and I've been to home Matilda's games here and we've seen a great atmosphere. And it's a question that gets asked, I think, at Socceroos games as well, is you don't get that real, like, raucous sort of atmosphere. And that's not strictly a men's football thing. We've been to the Women's World Cup. We saw what the Netherlands fans brought. We don't really care for the I believe that we will win of the Americans, but there's no doubt it helps get their team over the line. Like... Sam, you were there in the stadium. I mean, what do you want to hear? Like, I think we want to hear some good chants beyond fucking, sorry, explicit, Aussie, 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 oi, 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 like that sort of stuff. No one wants to hear that, but it feels like we're going to need, I know the Matilda's active guys do a great job, but they are quite small in number. It feels like with it really 18 odd months to go to get ready for this World Cup, our fans are going to have to maybe get a bit organised, get up and about because we've got to take advantage of this real home advantage don't we totally and that's what I kind of really liked about this friendly series is that it was a preview of 2023 in a number of different ways not just in terms of the players who we can expect to be playing on the field but also the fan atmosphere and the kinds of groups that we can expect to be coming to support their sides so this Brazil uh this pocket of Brazilian fans in the in the corner of the stadium were sensational they outsung the Australians from the national anthem at the start to all the way to the the final whistle the end and even in towards the press conference after everybody had left we were still sitting up in the media box and we could hear them in the car park beeping their horns and screaming around the car park it was amazing right and I think it comes back to maybe this idea of football culture because football in South America is the sport. It is the thing that you go and support and watch and love and talk about. And in that pocket of Brazil fans, we didn't just see Brazilian flags. We saw club flags. We saw club jerseys. We saw Corinthians fans. We saw even like a like an ultras group who had shown up quite early before a number of other sort of more casual Brazil fans had come in, all wearing black, all making chants, all making noise. They were fantastic. And so I think the that um, their context sort of, they bring that to the support of, of their national team football as well. And so perhaps when we think about Australian football, it's, it, we should think about it similarly when it comes to how our club support feeds into our national team support as well. And like obvious big shout out to Matilda's Active who have been working really hard since, particularly since France, to attract more members, to put together more chants, to put together gatherings and, and groups and collaborations and all that sort of stuff. And they had some fabulous flags and things. And maybe on Tuesday, um, one of the consequences of it was that because we didn't, we, you know, we weren't allowed to have fans from outside Sydney really or New South Wales, a number of Matilda's active fans who are part of those processes weren't able to actually be here and be part of it. Um, but I do think it the, the the larger issue is in terms of our football culture. And we've spoken about this quite a bit. You know, we're um, in terms of the, the sporting pecking order in Australia, we're not really near the top where we ought to be. And I think all of football has a responsibility in that sense, particularly now the A-Leagues are going to be rolling around and trying to really encourage fans to connect to those players because a lot of those players are going to go on to play for their national teams in future. And so that's how that support transfers. What's I only sort of know of the politics of showing up to a gig in a different band's T-shirt, but it sounds like it's quite a different thing in soccer. 
Is that right? Also, is there, do we see, I'm not, I don't follow the Socceroos too closely, but do you see that sort of, I guess, expression of fandom and connection between club and national team at Socceroos games? Or is this sort of um, a different, like, again, is it just different based on, you know, Brazil and Australia holistically? Yeah, I I think it's different. I think when it it comes to Australian football, it still feels like the, the club and national teams are separate in terms of fandom and support and groups. But when it comes to nations overseas, I think when you watch, for example, the Lionesses, you see fans rocking up in Arsenal jerseys. You see them rocking up in Man City jerseys. You know, there's, I think, a much clearer connection between club and country in those contexts, whereas we're, I think, still struggling to do that. And maybe that's the fault of, you know, both sides of the equation in some ways, not really forging that connection uh, sooner and making those pathways from club to country and, and vice versa more visible and celebrating that and ensuring that fans know that that connection is there. Um, so, yeah, so maybe, I don't know, like this is just sort of like big blue sky thinking, right? But I, I would really love to see in this new iteration of the A-Leagues for there to be much more... Um, connection to football Australia and more celebration of this sort of larger ecosystem of football that some, you know, a young academy kid coming through the Sydney FC can make the first team and can then go on to represent their country. And then that's a pathway and a pyramid that you can see and you can celebrate and you can follow a player from one point to the other. Um, And that, that sort of love and community support comes with that pathway as well. But that's, I don't, you know, this is just me sitting on the outside of it being like, yeah, maybe that's the issue, but when it comes to the Socceroos, I think another thing with their fandom is that the Socceroos are and have been for a while a, a bit boring. And I think fans, you know, when you ask it, when you ask a sort of regular football punter in Australia, name a bunch of Matildas. I think they could probably name three or four off the top of their head, you know, Kerr, Catley, Ford, Carpenter. When you say name, th- name three or four Socceroos, who would they name? You know, I feel like the Socceroos don't quite have as strong an identity as what the Matildas do. And, and that makes it difficult to connect to as a fan as well. Um, and perhaps also the fact that a number of Socceroos aren't playing at such high profile clubs around the world is maybe affecting that to some extent too. Like we've got players at Lyon, at Arsenal, at Chelsea, at the big clubs that everyone knows. But in the Socceroos, we've got, you know, one or two maybe playing at big, big clubs that we can recognise from a list but others are sort of second division Europe, you know, not really hugely well-known and only sort of a sprinkling as well of A-League players too. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are different kinds of factors that fold into all this sort of stuff, but I've been talking for a while, so I'd be curious to, to hear other people's thoughts. I think it probably falls into, and we won't go into it because it can always be a pod in itself, things around like active support culture here as well. Like you don't need to dig too far to look into things like um, active support in the A-League was really, this is the men's league, obviously, was especially big at your Wanderers and Melbourne Victory a few years ago and that sort of very much got repressed for a while there. But um, I feel like that's not necessarily always translated even when the Socceroos were massive. Like I feel like um, crowds for supporting our national teams, like it's not been chanting. It's been very much the big like, yeah, or the like just swell of noise. And I think that probably does tie in a little bit to to things like um following other sports like Australian rules football and rugby league, which don't necessarily have like that chanting, singing sort of culture. Um, yeah. And just what we, we mentioned before as well. Um, yeah. It, I think it's really important to make an effort to engage with football fans because fans are, are the most important thing in football. It's, as we say, football without fans is nothing. So I think, that's going to be a really big challenge, as you say, Sam, for Football Australia, for various clubs to to really encourage people to to get behind to get behind the Matildas, and then when it's the Socceroos, the Socceroos, and it's about welcoming that sort of chanting and singing culture rather than it's sort of I think in the past been sort of knocked back a bit. I think also there is the element of when a national team plays, you have people that will go along casually because it's watching your country play, right? So not everyone is necessarily going to be big football fans that would have been the same with the Matildas in recent nights so I think it is about developing it it's about nurturing it and I don't know as long as we make plenty of noise come 2023 that's I think that's the big thing but getting these big crowds or decent sized crowds even on a Tuesday night is um is certainly a big step towards that 
Yeah, I was going to say the crowd size for the, the Tuesday night game is fantastic. Um, it's like 12,000 something compared to 15,000 on the Saturday. Um, I was just, I think, again, there's probably a whole other pot in this, but I think it's super interesting that the W League used to sort of be marketed as come see the Matildas play in your backyard. But I wonder how much that may have actually curtailed that that linkage between club support and supporting football and being engaged with football as a whole and connecting it to the the Matildas support um, and sort of having it go in both directions, I suppose, because Sam, you've talked about this before on the pod as well. Like sometimes it feels like women's football fandom is also quite um, developed around players as well. So we may, we have really strong attachment as we've seen on this pod, we have really strong attachments to particular players and sometimes fandom can be built around that, which is really great in the sense as well that we do have like um, sort of a, a, Australian football diaspora now where people around the world are like holy cow Sam Kerr she's incredible and like she has supporters around the globe because she's such a fantastic footballer but yeah just making this sort of tying it all up and making it into something a little bit more cohesive will definitely be the thing and it'll be interesting to see with you know new A-leagues management if that's the thing that actually triggers it like the separation of national team management and um, domestic league management separating out could actually make it more connected. I don't know. We've been talking about this a while. I have like, my brain's just like, pew, 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 pew. this is very interesting to me, but um, we can definitely, we'll have lots of opportunities in the lead up to 2023 to talk about this. But long story short, what a turn out. Great vibes. That's One last thing that I, I wanted to mention was on, on the Brazil fans in particular, the thing that really excites me about 2023 is that this competition is being held in an extremely multicultural nation. And there were supposedly efforts by Portuguese radio here in Sydney to encourage Brazilian and, and Portuguese speaking fans to show up to this game. And so that's why we saw a really big contingent of them, particularly on the Tuesday, bringing all these flags and things. Like I didn't, I actually didn't expect that many to show up, but it, it seems like there had been efforts outside of just the main sort of football channels to really encourage people to, to come. And that's what I really anticipate for 2023 because we're going to have more nations than ever before at a Women's World Cup. We have so many nationalities and communities here in Australia that are going to be represented by these teams too. So I'd love to really see the kinds of engagement um, that is undertaken in order to really capture these pockets of communities and to try and funnel them into these games, particularly nations that perhaps wouldn't have anticipated themselves being on such a huge stage at this point as well um like i'm really curious to see more asian communities turn out to to this world cup because they, they're possibly going to have an extra spot and communities from oceania as well like outside of new zealand they could potentially get another half spot so being able to see more pacific islander nations coming into football i think would be fantastic too and speaking from anecdotally um growing up in macarthur in Campbelltown, there's famously a uh, a, a rugby competition where it's Samoa versus Tonga. And there's a huge Pacific Islander community out in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. And that game night where those two nations face each other and those communities come out in their colours is honestly one of the most incredible sporty experiences I've ever had. So if we're able to capture just those, like they're, they're out there, they're out there waiting. They just need, we just need to meet them where they are and try and find ways to bring them in. We saw a little bit of that, Sam, with the Asian Cup, the Men's Asian Cup in 2015. I know in Melbourne going yes. to games where it's like Palestine were playing or Iran were playing or like, you know, say you might have Vietnamese community of Vietnam, so they managed to get a spot for 2023. Like, there's so much potential. And we saw a level of that really being tapped into then. And if they can, and it's really positive to hear what you said, Sam, about them actively trying to tap into the Brazilian community in Sydney for these games because that's what we should be doing. You the more people, the better. And I think the games are a better atmosphere. It's a better night for everyone. And I think whether you were live at the stadium or watching on TV, it was like a party. And that's what you want. <laughs> that's, that's what we should be advertising in terms of this World Cup. I think it is going to be a big party. And, yeah, it's uh, we just need to make the most of it. We're going to make the whole World Cup the pub. 
no, I don't know how that's <laughs> ambitious, but I'm going to try. We've talked a lot about 2023 and how exciting that is. And I do not want to curb that because it is super exciting. I know we all are absolutely buzzing at the prospect, but we do have another major tournament literally around the corner. And we had the draw for the 2022 Asian Cup last night. So we know our opponents now. Australia is in Group B and they'll be playing Thailand, the Philippines and Indonesia. That tournament kicks off the 20th of Jan. So quick fire reactions to our group and how we're, we're feeling about the Asian Cup, Sam? I mean, the headlines write themselves, don't they? When it comes to Group B, um, the Matildas are going to be facing former head coach Alan Stajic, who has just taken over at the Philippines. Uh, it's a pretty interesting appointment. I think a lot of people saw that announcement a couple of days ago and were like, huh? You know, you were just coaching in the men's A-League competition and now you've sort of rocked up at uh, world number 68 in the Philippines. Be curious to see uh, what happens there. Yeah, so that uh, that's obviously going to be the, the sort of the major guiding narrative, I think, of Group B. Um, and Mel Andrietta, assistant head coach, um, or assistant coach to Tony Gustafsson, uh, was pretty diplomatic when she was asked about it in the press conference after the announcement. She's like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's, it's a unique situation. Um, we're going to be going into it the same way we go into any game. We're going to prepare. We're going to scout. We're going to, you know, do all those kinds of things. So she was very good about it. Um, but another, I mean, another nation that I'm actually quite interested in seeing is Thailand. I thought Thailand were really exciting uh, during the Olympic qualifiers here in Sydney. Uh, they have some really fantastic players who are starting to come through as well. And uh, I don't want to sort of open up any old traumas, but we have some history against Thailand as well when it comes to uh, these kinds of competitions. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I think the the groups are, are really interesting. I'd be really curious. Um, like group Group C in particular, I think is great as well. And and you've got China and, and Taiwan in Group A. Like that's going to be a whole thing. Um, I'd really love to talk more about China as a footballing nation and what they're doing because I feel like that's a whole. I mean, it's a whole other episode, maybe, and a whole other article that I could probably write. But yeah, I mean, this is this is good. I feel like we've probably got the easiest of the groups, um, and it's it's going to be pretty smooth sailing through to the knockout stages. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's that's sort of all that I can really talk about. Yeah, I would same lines as you, Sam. I think play Indonesia first, um, which no offense to Indonesia, like that seems like the most straightforward way to start this tournament. They, in terms of getting some early confidence, like you'd back the Matildas in to win that pretty comfortably. And then you mentioned the narrative surrounding the Philippines game, and also you know like I think both teams there will know what to expect. Um, yeah, I think under Alan Stadich, I think you can expect um, that Philippines team to be very organised, to be fit. Um, and to really pose a pretty significant challenge. And it's, I mean, it's an exciting challenge for them as well and for all the teams in Asia because, as you mentioned, Sam, there is that additional spot at the World Cup up for grabs. So this Asian Cup is um, really going to be intriguing. And for, for Thailand as well, who we know obviously played at the last, um, obviously played at the last Women's World Cup um, and uh, probably deserves um, a better run of things than that they copped with that 13-0 loss to the USA, like, they pose us a real challenge at the the last Asian Cup. Um, so yeah, there's and as you say, there's going to be all sorts of interesting narratives. I think even if we do, you know, get through this group quite easily, the knockout stages then can become quite challenging just because of the manner of the draw. Like the winner playing a runner up and runners up playing each other, I think it can get quite complex. But I think they'd be pretty happy with generally with the the group that they've got and. Yeah, it's um, tournament football, which is what Tony Gustafson uh, loves and thrives on. So this is um, going to be a really interesting challenge and it'll be interesting to see how they rotate the squad between those games in terms of getting new play- these newer or fresher players in and um, conserving energies because that's not something they were really obviously able to do in the Olympics when it was the group of death and they had to try and make the most of every game. So it's going to be really interesting in terms of squad management and Obviously, they'll be going out trying to win the Asian Cup. Like, we've not won it since 2010. We've run us up twice, like, to Japan both times. So they'll be going out to try and get a get another major trophy, but it's, um, it's not going to be easy. And, Sam, I like what you said about China because I think they would have felt that they drastically underperformed at the Olympics and really didn't give a good account of themselves. So I think they will be out to prove a point as well. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how they fare in the group stage and then obviously the knockouts. So, yeah, 
interesting times ahead and it's not that far away either, really. Yeah, we can't wait to kind of see how the Asian Cup goes down. It's going to be absolutely fascinating, even though we don't need it for World Cup qualification. It's it's a major tournament, so it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Cannot wait for that. No booth this week, so let's move into a how good we're not ones to talk about men's football, but some things have happened. So, Sam, I know you wanted to start off this chat. It's it's a very big how good. It's a very big how good, and it's a very important how good. Um, if you have been living under a rock, what has happened in Australian football in the last couple of days is that Adelaide United men's player Josh, Josh Cavallo has come out publicly as gay. He is the first Australian male player to do so while playing in the top-tier competition here in Australia. And he is, as far as we're aware, the only out male player in a top flight men's league anywhere in the world. It's an extraordinary moment. It's an incredibly moving and incredibly brave decision on Josh's behalf to do it. And I I really need to credit not only him, but also Adelaide United, because the way that they've handled this story, I think has been really exceptional. The the video that they created for him, the, the statement, um, all the support around him. And, you know, we've been speaking over the last couple of weeks about team cultures and it sounds like Josh is in a team culture, in an environment at Adelaide where he feels incredibly comfortable and incredibly supported by his teammates, by his coaches, by his staff, to the point where he was able to arrive at making this decision. Like it's a really big thing, particularly for a 21-year-old male footballer who says in his statement, in his video, in all the interviews he's given since then, that he has struggled with this aspect of himself for a number of years now, that he couldn't find a way to tie together his sexuality and his profession, because there is still this overriding assumption that sport more generally for men is a very masculine space it's a very heteronormative space that you need to be a certain uh, a certain gender and a certain sexuality in order to excel and, and belong in that sporting space and moments like this by Josh I think really challenge that narrative and what's been so wonderful is the way in which global football has embraced him You've seen so many personal messages from players, from clubs, from leagues, from FIFA Pro, all these major sort of um, like blue tick, you know, Twitter accounts coming out and saying, you know, this is a fantastic moment. Thank you for doing this. Where you know, football is for everyone. Everyone belongs in football, and and this is a, a really important milestone in opening up that conversation again. And what I really, really hope is that he is not the last. I really hope that we are able to create a sport in which a moment like Josh Cavallo coming out is not this huge moment to celebrate because it's normal, because this is just what everyone can do. Everyone feels comfortable doing. It's great to celebrate it now, but I really hope that this is a turning point for the sport that we're able to see so many more male players in particular feeling more comfortable, feeling like the precedent has been set, that things are safe for them, that they're able to be who they are and really celebrate that on the field as well. So yeah, just a big how good to Josh. Uh, it's it's an amazing moment for him personally. It's an amazing moment for Australian football. Um, and it's an amazing moment for for queer the queer community as well to be able to see a professional athlete of, of that kind of stature, a top flight competitor, being brave enough to come out and and be themselves. I think that's really special. Sam, wasn't it so beautiful to see that you could see just the, the weight? You could actually see in his, he did an interview with Channel 10 to the project yeah. as well, the weight had actually lifted off his shoulders. He had this big grin. He looked comfortable with himself. He looked relaxed. He was happy. He was content. You could just see it in his face and in the way he carried himself, that he had, he was proud to be himself. He was, he'd, he'd taken it and I think, um, pretty much anyone that's come out could relate to that feeling of being entirely yourself and being comfortable with who you are and feeling accepted. And uh, he described it quite well in terms of not hiding away part of himself and not lying and feeling like he was living a double life. Um, and he mentioned he was doing that for several years. Josh Cavallo is um, he's from Melbourne and he's been a part, I think, of all three Melbourne clubs throughout the very early years of his career, Melbourne City, Melbourne Victory, and most recently at Western United, where it really didn't work out. And then he went to Adelaide United last year and really thrived, predominantly playing through the midfield. And he's 
really taken off there and sort of found a home. And clearly that extends to off the pitch as well. You could tell in that release from Adelaide United, not only was it head coach Carl Viet, but his assistant, Ross Aloisi, who it appears was the first member of the coaching staff, Josh told, I assume, given he was quoted in the in the story. And it says a lot about what they've been able to create there, that he, as you say, Sam, that he felt so welcomed. And I think they handled it brilliantly from a media perspective. There would have been such a temptation um, from a pure news perspective to go, oh, so should we speak to a newspaper? Should we do this? But clearly they listened to the way Josh wanted it to be done. And it was done so sensitively. He had the Instagram posts that they clearly helped him in terms of designing and, you know, getting the quotes on each page. And then they did the video, um, which included some really nice little candid moments as well, because it must have taken him a little while to, to find the words. But once he got started talking, he was just so comfortable. And it's exciting because it's going to help so many people. Um, I can't imagine what it must be like being a 21-year-old kid and not be feeling like you can talk to your colleagues and your friends about little things like your dating life or you know like where you're planning to go out or what you're planning to do or your family or it it must have just taken such a weight off your shoulders and I hope the young queer people who have been similarly battling can look at how not just relieved but content and happy with himself Josh was in those videos and in that that subsequent interview with the project which again I think probably ties into the fact that the A-League has that broadcast deal straight away this story is being uh, taken on to mainstream TV it would have been a massive story regardless but it was really well done um, the Carrie Bickmore interview with Josh and you could just tell how happy he was it's so exciting and it's hit through pop culture as well there's queer athletes from different sports um, Josh is also the only current out uh, gay male sports person in any of Australia's top men's leagues so that includes your AFL NRL super rugby yada 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 so it's significant across the sporting landscape here um, and it clearly he's got plenty of support around him you only had to look on social media to see how much the football community was behind him and yeah I, I'm sure this will be a really big week for him but um, it gives it he also gets a few weeks to sort of address it and talk to people about it and then I'm sure for him it will be back into the grind of football before his season starts so no it's it's just I think the good news story that everyone needed and it's been so good to see the the sort of outpouring of support for him and hopefully that continues and yeah once again credit to Josh and to everyone around him and to Adelaide United um, because yeah it just feels like it's been handled so well across the board and it's been done exactly the way that Josh wanted to do it and that's the most important thing. So, yeah, just to echo you, Sam, how good? Yeah, I, I don't know. You guys have covered it really well. But I think it's a really important moment in the sense as well that not, not so much a line in the sand, but it's an opportunity for clubs and like footballing communities and even sports communities and, and sport in general in Australia to sort of position themselves in relation to this moment and to make sure that they... I guess, uh, showing where they lie with this sort of thing. And it's it's been incredibly wonderful to see the out, like just the overwhelmingly positive support for Josh. And there's been some, you know, look, you know, homophobia basically at, at the edges and at the margins. But I, I just wanted to bring up, like, for example, there was uh, Western United, for example, they've taken an opportunity to state that they, a, you know, an inclusive or a, are aiming to be an inclusive club for LGBT folk and that's where they're at. And someone said, you know, I guess it's time to unfollow. And A-League men responded and said, this isn't an airport. No need to announce your departure. And it's sort of like that. You need those. In, it's not just about, <laughs> it's fantastic, truly. Um, and it's just that it's sort of institutional moments of not necessarily just like, coming forward and being like, it's a safe space for you here because I don't think, um, you know, any organisation necessarily gets to make that claim um, because it has to be backed up by things like that, basically, by, I don't know, I, I tweeted, I was like, we just need to make it an unsafe space for homophobes and that's a really big part of this. And so seeing that sort of flow-on effect um, has been really wonderful and I'm just... Yeah, um, really positive about what this will this will mean for um, yeah 
sports, people playing sports or watching sports or people who haven't felt like they could participate in sport because of their sexuality or gender identity, being able to see this as a moment where things might be shifting and that, that they might be more welcome. So I don't know. It's just, yeah, net good, joyful coming out stories. You absolutely love to see it. How, how good. And like you guys said, fantastic to see that Josh has been surrounded by um, such a supportive community because um, that would have been just such a game changer for this moment for him. One thing I hope that other sports teams, both professional and amateur do, and I know I already mentioned it, that interview that Josh does with the project, he is so articulate in talking about um, the culture of dressing rooms and the expectations around masculinity and strength and the persona you put on as opposed to actually accepting people and vulnerability and these sorts of things because it's like what you mentioned Angela it's like um I saw Optus Sport saying any homophobia in the comments you'll get a ban deleted they're actually taking the effort to moderate but that's the same in change rooms and club cultures um it's all well and good to be like yeah good on him good on him for doing that yeah yeah um but it's actually on the coaches and the senior players and management this is something Adelaide United have done really well clearly to create a culture where someone feels welcome and comfortable to to come out and to be their authentic selves and you see a lot of sports organizations I've seen it across different codes are really focused on things like vulnerability and players being honest and maybe talking about their their backgrounds or growing up or experiences that have affected them and this is that but on another level so it's I hope that clubs can use something like that as a really good I think educational tool on not just talking the talk, but walking the walk in terms of building a safe and supportive environment and maybe challenging some of the discussions that can happen um, maybe in your change rooms or in your clubs around things like gender and uh, dating. Like Josh mentioned, you know, just it's very casual. Who's your missus? Who are you seeing? What's going on? Like it's changing these sorts of discussions. And a lot of them only have to be very subtle shifts or tweaks in language or in mannerisms, but they can make such a difference. And um, I hope that it is also used as a, a learning opportunity for so many um, clubs to go, okay, so how do we do these things? How do we talk about these topics? And it's also okay to acknowledge that it might not be an area that you are well acquainted with or an expert in. It's okay to look at who can we get in to talk to the players about language or about our approach to masculinity? What resources can we use? And I hope that's another thing that is prompted because it's important to, to welcome Josh and to be so thankful for what he's done. Um, and I think what he has done will pave the way for so many people to feel comfortable and welcomed in sport. But it is on all of us across society, but obviously especially across sport, to make sure that these environments are as welcoming and comfortable as possible to enable people to feel that they can do this because that's as important as the person making a decision themselves. So, yeah, it was, um, I think he's, Josh has just done this brilliantly for someone so young and um, hopefully, yeah, it's, I think it will be a huge step for sport generally, not just here, but around the world. And hopefully for Josh, he has a good another 10 years or so as a professional footballer and in his time as a pro footballer he gets to see so many other players um I guess sort of reap the rewards of the the big step he's taken it's been just really phenomenal to to see the response and to to see what Josh has done and I think it's just it really is it makes you feel good that he has been able to do this and that generally speaking the response has been super super positive so a big how good there was another little how good. Sam, do you want to talk about the other how good? Just the a very a very minor thing in the grand scheme of things, but it's another step on the road to 2023. It is another, another step on the road towards 2023. We saw uh, within minutes of the Asian Cup draw uh, being announced, we saw FIFA announced the new brand and the new identity of the 2023 Women's World Cup. Um 
It was released in a really fabulous video. It had a sonic uh, identity to it as well, which is a new phrase that I've learned in the last 24 hours. Um, and it had some fabulous images, including and featuring uh, our very own Alira Toby, uh, First Nations woman currently playing for Canberra. She has a bit of a starring role in one of the scenes. Um, and yeah, so it's got the the new logo, um, which is uh, a sort of a, a bright uh, poppy um, sort of harking back, Marissa, to Italia uh, 90, I think it was. Um, I don't know if that's the direct reference, but it, it very much has that kind of vibe to it. Um, the colour scheme is meant to represent uh, more natural, earthy um, kind of environmental colours of Australia and New Zealand as well. Uh, the 32 cards that are sort of splayed around the football are meant to represent the 32 nations in the tournament. And you can also see um, sort of in the design, there are um, some, they, they collaborated with some First Nations artists in both Australia and New Zealand to design some of those aspects as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I like it. Um, I think it's going to take me a while for, to, to really love it. And, but what I'm really excited for is like, seeing it in the world like I want to you know for like one of the things that I love this is a weird tangent but at the Tokyo Olympics the skateboarding uniforms was something that I was really obsessed with and Japan had these fantastic block colored shirts that their women skateboarders wore and I would love to see somehow I don't know how but the color scheme the designs of this rebrand transformed into fashion transformed into prints, transformed into a whole bunch of like cool stuff that we can have, that we can hang on our walls, that we can wear out, that we can, you know, that we can do stuff with rather than just like, oh yeah, it looks cool on the social media video and it's going to be on the advertising hoardings outside the stadiums. Like I actually want it to be in the world. And I think if it's in the world, people are going to get more excited about it. So yeah, so I'm, I think it's cool. Um, the slogan beyond greatness, you know, it's a slogan. That's one of the things that it is. Sure. Um, it's very FIFA, you know, it's, it's pretty general. It's, you know, it's something that had to be that way, I suppose, because it's, it's very corporate. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't hate it. I don't, I'm not extremely passionate about it, but you know, I'm, it's good. I couldn't even tell you what the slogan for like the France world cup was, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's. was not it dare to shine that really oh. definitely not patronizing slogan at all mm. it was yeah. a similarly nothing phrase like it's it's words they're words and they've been strung together and that's your slogan <laughs> yeah and I do feel I'm sure that there's been hours and hours and hours of meetings going into finding the two perfect words and at the end of the day it's two words you can't you can't really do too much of it but that's all right yeah, it's funky. I like it. And you're right, Sam. I immediately Googled that the skateboarding uniforms because I, after the Olympics, I was like, I want to buy those. And then I forgot. Now I want to buy them again. So sorry in advance, bank account. I, I like what you said, Sam, though, about seeing it out in the world. I think that's, that's what's going to kind of endear it to us if we are able to see it in the world. And that's one of actually my criticisms of the 2019 World Cup, particularly in Paris. You had no idea there was a World Cup going on until you were literally like 200 metres from the Parc de Prince, like for the opening game and stuff. So we, I kind of, regardless of how you feel about it, I want to see this logo everywhere. I want to be like absolutely bombarded by it. I want to like, you know, every corner I look around, I want to see this stuff because I want everyone to know that this is here and this is happening and this is how you know that it is happening. So I do I do like it. I like the colours. I think they're fun, but I just, I want to see it everywhere. I want it to be plastered on every bloody wall. I want to see it at Flinders Street. I want to see it, you know, at the Opera House. I want to see it anywhere it could possibly be. I want to see this logo and these kind of designs and stuff. Yeah, like I, I think it, the color scheme is really would be lovely for like murals or like straight art and stickers. I want some stickers. Give me a sticker. I put it everywhere <laughs> on the tram, on the pole, on my laptop. <laughs> How do we? I'm get... serious. That will no. that will get into people's minds as soon as you said tram. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, we need to paint the trams. They paint trams all the time. We need 2023 World Cup tram or light rail for our friends north of the border. Trams. Again, don't make me do it myself because it would be <laughs> terrible. 
Like, I want to see it. I want to see those designs on the opera house. You know, like I want to see it out, like doing stuff to make people know that this is happening. And I want to also have stuff that I can keep. I want memories of this place, you know, like the memories that I have of France are either in my brain or their cups or their tickets. Like they're not actually things that I can use in my everyday life. They're not things that I can stick on my walls, you know. Like I want like a cool big poster that I can get framed of like a really cool design that incorporates all these colours, all these different patterns and things. Um, that's like a really lovely illustration of the tournament. Like I remember in Paris there was this long walkway towards the pop-up FIFA museum which had all of these submitted posters from designers and illustrators around France and some of them were just so cool they were like harking back to like Russian style kinds of propaganda posters with the way that they and they were, it was all about women's football like I'd love to see stuff like that I'd love to see it in fashion I'd love to see it more like on bus stops I'd, like I just it needs to be everywhere in the world it can't just be at the time I feel like we need to like hopefully I mean we we sitting here but we need to do but no FIFA needs to like do something about this you know and they've claimed about they've bragged in some ways often about investing a billion dollars into women's football over the course of this four-year cycle so like show me the money let's see where it's going it's not you love to see it it is we will love to see it we will FIFA won't we thank you (laughs) that is a threat and it is a credible threat no it's not we're not those kind of people but no we love to see it and I tweeted about it and I was just like I'm just stoked that this means we're closer to the actual tournament because that's I think that's the thing that's really kind of gonna get us all up out of our seats hairs on the back of our neck standing up all that kind of stuff the actual tournament so awesome that we can tick this off and we're one step closer to 2023 which so excited for cannot wait anyway That's enough from us today. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can find us on ESPN.com.au and the ESPN app. We're on Spotify, Apple and Google, wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to subscribe and leave a review if you like what we're doing. We're at the Far Post Pod on social media, so you can chat to us over there. But until next time, see yous.